Hello to whoever you are and whenever you are. Welcome to the Paradox Podcast. My name is Craig Hadley, and I am one of the pastors at Paradox Church. Paradox Church meets in Redlands, California, and we've been a microchurch for about five years now. Today's sermon is in the book of Deuteronomy, and it comes at the tail end of a three-month-long sermon series in this book of the Bible. Now, one thing you should know about Paradox, if this is your first time here, is that when we write sermons at Paradox, they are designed to start discussions and not end them. So I do not expect you to agree with everything I say on this episode. So we invite you to join us, open your mind, allow it to stretch, and enjoy this sermon, which is entitled, The Rules of Deuteronomy. Let's begin today with a passage of scripture from the Holy Bible. Our reading is from Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse one. We read, no one whose testicles are crushed or whose penis is cut off shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. Excuse me? This is in the Bible? People actually consider these words to be sacred? Maybe we should read it again to make sure we heard it correctly the first time. We read from Deuteronomy 23 verse 1, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose penis is cut off shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. Yep, it's just as bad as we remember. And if you find that your translation of this verse is not as graphic as the translation that I am reading from, then please know that the earliest Hebrew manuscripts we have contain the word shafka, which is the ancient Hebrew word for penis. So rather than translating the text for what it is, translations like the NIV will throw in the word emasculated in an attempt to tone down the unfiltered words of the text. I particularly enjoy the King James translation of Deuteronomy 23. In the KJV, we read, He that is wounded in the stones, or hath his privy member cut off, shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Which sounds very British to me. Have you ever had someone tell you that the Bible is boring? Because my response is that the Bible isn't boring. The problem is that the church insists on reading the boring parts. And here's a verse that really grabs our attention from the moment we read it, and all of a sudden, we are filled with questions because this piece of scripture is anything but boring. The questions I have are questions like, when we read stories about people who risk their lives for translating the Bible into their native tongue, do you think they got to Deuteronomy 23.1 and thought, really? I'm risking my life for this? Another question, why on earth is Deuteronomy 23.1 in the Bible? Was this passage really helpful to anyone at any time? Another question. Why is it that I've never heard anyone insist that we need to take Deuteronomy 23 more seriously and do genital inspections of every man who walks into church? I mean, that question is a fair one, right? People are adamant that we cannot pick and choose what biblical commandments we need to follow. Rather, they argue, we should keep all of the commandments. And yet, I don't know of one church 
in all of America that even cares to attempt to follow Deuteronomy 23.1. This is remarkable because there isn't a lot of gray area in this verse. The person who is speaking, Moses, is very clear. If men have all their parts, they are in. If men are missing something down there, then they are out. Discussion over. Even though Deuteronomy 23.1 is clear and easy to interpret, this verse and other verses like it call into question the very role of the Bible in our lives. A lot of Christians view this book as the moral authority for all of humanity. And there is a real sense among Christians that if people just read the Bible for themselves, then every person would come to the same conclusions about what is ethical and what is not. But that simply isn't the case. To illustrate this, I want to share with you three stories about my experience with the Bible. The first story takes place all the way back in 2019. I attended the first ever Pride event in downtown Redlands. This long overdue celebration of queer folks featured vendors, giveaways, inspiring speakers, and alternative rockers hoity-toity, which is one of my favorite local bands. It was a blast. And because it was a pride event, the colors of the rainbow were everywhere. People waved pride flags, others sported temporary pride tattoos, and companies rebranded their logos to affirm queer folks in Redlands. However, across the street, a small group of less than 25 Christians stoically looked at pride with a posture of judgment. They held signs high above their head that were devoid of any color. On white poster board, these Christians had written Bible verses with black markers that they believed condemned queer life. I remember standing in a sea of swirling rainbows, looking across the street at the monochromatic signs quoting scripture and shaking my head. Is this what the Bible is supposed to be? A book that tells Christians that they shouldn't join the party? That Christians should condemn and judge queer folks from the sidelines? And that Christians should remove any and all colors from our signs so that way we won't be mistaken with the prism of joy that is pride? The second story takes place back in 2008 when I enrolled as a first-year student in seminary. I arrived at that seminary hungry for answers. This appetite stemmed from a relationship with my best friend in undergrad, a man named Tyler, who identified as an atheist. For four years, he logically and methodically picked apart my belief in a six-day creation, which in turn threatened my entire understanding of the Bible. I could not wait to get to seminary and discover answers and retorts and arguments that would put me at an advantage the next time I engaged Tyler in conversation. Introduction to the Hebrew Bible was my very first class, and within the first two or three weeks, we began to study the book of Genesis. Even though I grew up going to church every week and spent 13 years of my life in Christian education, for the first time in my life, in grad school, I heard that Genesis 2 contains an entirely different creation story from Genesis 1. 
This completely blew my mind. And I felt betrayed. I felt betrayed by all of the teachers who came before me and either knew that there were two creation stories in Genesis and didn't tell me, or worse, they had no idea that Genesis possessed two different creation stories. These contradictory accounts reveal that the Bible cannot even agree with itself on how life began on this planet. I went home that day from seminary utterly confused about the Christian faith because what is the purpose of the Bible if the Bible doesn't give us answers? The third story happened in 2015. In that year, I worked for a global denomination. And this denomination, like a lot of other global denominations in 2015, debated whether or not female pastors could be ordained as equal to male pastors. There were committees and study groups and sermons and pamphlets flying around the denomination like wildfire. And those who were in favor of women's ordination used verses from across scripture to justify their position of gender equality. Conversely, the misogynists in the church, who also happened to be in charge, cited just as many verses from the Bible in their work to justify the inferiority of women. During that year, I heard more quotes about what the Bible says about the equality and the oppression of women and how the equality or oppression of women will ultimately determine whether or not we are people of the word. And even though they believed in opposite agendas, the misogynists and the reasonable human beings used the exact same book to justify their view of women in the workplace. Now, living through that time in 2015 felt dissonant. And as the debate raged on, I remember thinking during that year a very strange and a very new thought. I thought to myself, I don't care if there's 2,000 verses in the Bible that clearly state that women should never be ordained as ministers in the church. Even if the Bible said that, I would still support women's ordination. And when I thought that, I realized that my entire perception of what the Bible actually is had changed dramatically since the time I left undergrad and began attending seminary. I did not view the Bible as a moral authority anymore. And I felt that it was imperative to openly disagree with the Bible and go against the Bible if the Bible violated human rights. And if I could freely disagree with the Bible, then what role is the Bible supposed to play in my life? I grew up in a household and a church that held the Bible as a moral authority. The idea was that God gave us the Bible as a kind of instruction manual for human beings to read, digest, and then apply into our daily actions so that we might live in a way that honors our creator. But that raises the question, what does it mean when we say God gave us the Bible? There are a lot of different opinions about how God gave us these writings, but the dominant narrative in Christianity is that God directly inspired each and every word in the Bible. To illustrate what this traditional understanding looks like, let's go back to the book of Genesis. 
God creates the heavens and the earth, the rocks and the trees, the birds and the fish, and the animals and the humans. The humans begin to populate the earth, but God doesn't like this specific population of earth. So God sends a flood, an ark, and then a rainbow. Noah's family emerges from the ark and begins to repopulate the earth. Nations emerge from the descendants of Noah until finally a man named Abram is born. God calls Abram to leave his family and go start a new kind of nation, and Abram, in faith, goes. Four generations later, Abram's family settles in Egypt due to a drought in modern-day Israel. And a few generations after that, Egypt enslaves the men and women who are the descendants of Abram. Now, before we continue in our story, we must make a note that we still do not have a Bible. No matter how conservative or liberal you are, there is not a soul who believes that any kind of religious text exists for the children of Israel at this point in their history. Returning to the story, the children of Israel are enslaved by the empire of Egypt for 400 years. The Israelites cry out for liberation and God hears their prayers. God sends a liberator known as Moses, and with a mighty and miraculous hand, God emancipates the Israelites from bondage, and they are led across the sea and into the wilderness while God vanquishes their oppressors. Here in the wilderness is where the Christian tradition typically believes that things started to change. The tradition tells us that God, all of a sudden, decides that humanity needs a code of ethics encapsulated in writing. While this isn't in the Bible, the tradition assumes that God approaches Moses. She says to Moses, Moses, I need you to write a Bible. Go and fetch a piece of papyrus and a writing utensil. So Moses, just like his forefather Abram, goes in faith. He returns and says to the Almighty, I'm here, God. What do you want me to write? And God says, write the word Genesis at the top of the page. And Moses dutifully obeys. Then God says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Moses writes, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God continues, the earth was a formless void and Moses follows along. The earth was a formless void. And so on and so forth, all the way through the book of Genesis. And then God says, now write Exodus at the top of the page. And Moses once again obeys. The tradition believes that God dictates every word of Exodus to Moses. And Moses, acting as a scribe, perfectly transcribes every word from the tongue of the Creator. This holy dictation continues for the book of Leviticus, the book of Numbers, and then the book of Deuteronomy. Which means that if you subscribe to this tradition, then you believe that there was a historical moment when Moses recorded Deuteronomy and God said, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose penis is cut off shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. And if you believe that this is a historical moment, then I have to ask you, do you think Moses blindly copied this rule down in silence? Or do you think Moses stopped writing, looked up and said, now hang on a minute, I need an explanation. Because if it was me, I would definitely have some questions for God. 
Either way, the tradition holds that God needs Moses to include Deuteronomy 23.1 in the scriptures, and Moses obliges the inspiration of God. After recording the first five books of the Bible, Moses dies, and his writings become known as both the Torah and the Law of Moses. The next generation embraces the Torah, and the generation after that does the same. Centuries and even a millennium later, the Torah becomes the most influential writing in all of Judaism. These words are so important that, according to historians Anne Spangler and Lois Verberg, the people of Judea send every male child and a few female children to school to memorize all five books of the Torah. By the age of 10, typical boys in Judea could recite all five books of the Torah from memory. And if these boys could do that, then there is a moment in school when each boy must learn and memorize Deuteronomy 23.1. A boy named Philip is born into this culture and this expectation 2,000 years ago. Philip grows up in a region known as Bethsaida, and Bethsaida has a reputation as being the most conservative region in all of Judea. While we do not know for sure, we can plausibly assume that Philip travels to school every day to memorize the Torah, and by the age of 10, Philip has committed all five books of Torah to his internal memory. A few years later, John 1 tells us that Jesus finds Philip and says to him, follow me. Philip drops everything and follows Jesus as one of his disciples. Over the next several months and possibly years, Philip witnesses firsthand Jesus dining with sinners, empowering women, reading Torah in the synagogue, deconstructing sacred rules, and reconstructing new ethics. Philip abandons Jesus when the Romans arrest him. He hears of the crucifixion of Jesus. He weeps when Jesus is buried. And then he sees with his own eyes the resurrected life and body of Jesus Christ. Before Jesus returns to heaven, Jesus says to all of the disciples that they are to go out into all of the world and baptize all of the people in the name of the Creator, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Philip just like his ancient ancestor Abram, goes. In Acts 8, Philip follows the direction of God down a sparsely populated desert road from Jerusalem to Gaza. After walking for some time, Philip meets a royal official from the court of the Queen of Ethiopia. This official is sitting in a chariot on the side of the road. We later learn from the narrator that this man is in charge of the Queen's treasury and that this man is is also a eunuch. A eunuch is a man whose testicles have been crushed and according to the clear law in Deuteronomy 23, cannot be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. Now Philip looks over at this official from Ethiopia and notices that he is reading from the prophet Isaiah. Philip asks him, do you understand what you are reading? And the official says, how can I? and he invites Philip to sit with him in the chariot. The passage that puzzles the royal official is from Isaiah 53. 
The royal official reads to Philip, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth? The official then looks up from the scroll and asks Philip, Who is this passage about? Are these words about the prophet Isaiah or someone else? Philip happily answers that these words from Isaiah are a prophecy about Jesus Christ. And the author of Acts tells us that Philip then shared the good news of the gospel with the royal official. After hearing about Jesus, the royal official looks around, sees water, and says in verse 36, Look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? Well, the answer to that question is that Deuteronomy 23.1 is what prevents this official from being baptized. And here's Philip, who most likely has Deuteronomy 23.1 memorized, and those words from Moses are tying a knot in his stomach. The tension arises from the fact that the words in Deuteronomy are clear. Deuteronomy 23.1 does not offer any wiggle room in the attitude one should take toward eunuchs. Eunuchs are out. Eunuchs cannot participate in the work of the people of God. And seeing as reconstructive surgery does not exist in the ancient world, there is nothing that this royal official can do to be readmitted into the assembly of the Lord. The tension increases when we consider that God led Philip to this royal official on this very road. In my imagination, Philip is desperately trying to discern whether God is putting him through a test. Philip wants to know if God is testing him to see if he will remain devout to the Torah. Or, Philip wonders, is God testing me in the opposite direction to see if I will discard scripture in the name of greater humanity? I picture all of these things going through Philip's mind in a matter of seconds as the royal official's question hangs in the air. Philip, what is to prevent me from getting baptized right now? The Bible is the correct answer. And somehow, it's also the wrong answer. Because after a moment, Philip shakes his head and says, nothing. Nothing is preventing you from being baptized right now. Philip then walks down with the royal official to the water. And he baptizes him in the name of the Creator, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. My friends, in this story, Philip disobeys Scripture so that he can follow God. The baptism of the royal official is a blatant disregard of what many people consider to be the infallible Word of God. And God is the one leading Philip into that blatant disregard. When we talk about what it means to be Christian, we go back to the very dawn of this religion and discover that the Christian tradition is disobeying scripture in order to become more inclusive. The early church challenges us to recognize that God is much bigger than the Bible and much bigger than any book that we have in our human existence. We do not worship a Bible. We worship the God who is bigger than the Bible. 
Which brings us back to the original question that Deuteronomy 23.1 dared to ask us. What exactly is the purpose of the Bible in our lives today? When I was growing up, I believed that the Bible was dictated to the authors of Scripture, like Moses, from the very mouth of God. But the more that I read this book, the more problematic that idea became. I encountered stories like Philip disregarding Scripture. I read biblical laws that justified the hatred of other human beings. I experienced contradiction after contradiction in Scripture, which testified consistently to the humanity of the Bible rather than the divinity of Scripture. The more I studied the Bible, the less I believed the Bible to be an infallible inspiration. Instead, I have found that it is much more helpful to imagine the Bible and the inspiration behind the Bible through the metaphor of an art gallery. Imagine walking through this art gallery and seeing all of the different paintings, the different colors, the different ideas and subjects. And as you take them all in, you are overwhelmed by the diversity of the creativity before you. And as you walk the halls of this art gallery, I must tell you that these paintings are a much more accurate representation and metaphor of what the Bible truly is. A collection of finite people attempting to convey creative ideas about the infinite God. Now, some of these paintings in the gallery may speak more to you than other paintings in the gallery. Some paintings may be flat out uninspiring. But when we can see and recognize and include and love the humanity of the people behind the paintings and the writings of Scripture, then we can start to see the divine who inspired all of Scripture and the divine who inspired all of the art. The Bible is like an art gallery, and the pages are filled with human beings who encounter the divine in some transcendent way and then did their best to try and convey that experience in words. The Bible is valuable as long as the Bible stays in its proper place. And the proper place of the Bible is a human record of multiple generations sharing how they perceived God in their own limited realities and own limited lifetimes. Which brings us back to Deuteronomy 23.1. This is a bizarre verse. There is a sense that we should not put forth any effort to practice Deuteronomy 23.1 in 2021. But I do not think that we should dismiss this verse entirely. While our modern egos want to dismiss this restriction on men with mutilated genitals as primitive, I think this verse can teach us to grow in both empathy and in humility. While we don't know for sure why this verse exists, my best guess is that whoever wrote down Deuteronomy 23.1 for the first time did so because they read the book of Genesis and took Genesis seriously. In Genesis 1, God creates all of material reality in six sequences. During the sixth sequence, God creates many men and women at the same time, and all of them are created in God's image. Once these men and women begin to breathe and become aware of reality, God blesses them. And then God speaks directly to all of them by giving them a commandment. 
she says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. According to the author of Genesis, God's initial desire for humanity is to make some babies. Now, this may seem like a strange desire for God to have. Until you consider that this author lived during a tumultuous time in which the number one way for a nation to grow in power was to grow in numbers. More people in your country meant more military, more farmers, more workers, and more money. And all these things were interpreted as blessings from God. After all, if you became rich and powerful in the ancient world, it was because God was pleased with you and blessed you with power and riches. With that in mind, we can see how in the ancient world, be fruitful and multiply is the logical theological conclusion. Around the same time that Genesis is being written down, the book of Deuteronomy is being written down. And the person that is writing Deuteronomy, most likely, lives in the same society and during a similar era as the author of Genesis. This means that both authors hold similar religious ideals. Specifically, that the best way to receive God's blessing is to make sure that people in our society create as many babies as possible. So while the author of Genesis writes, be fruitful and multiply, the author of Deuteronomy is much more threatening with his words. This author says, if any man damages his genitals, then he is kicked out of the community. The implied application of this commandment is that a man should protect his reproductive organs with his life. With this kind of backstory, I can still disagree with Deuteronomy 23.1, but now I can empathize with Deuteronomy 23.1. Before, I dismissed it as bizarre, but now I can understand the reason why this verse became part of the Torah. But the story of Deuteronomy 23.1 doesn't end there. Because sometime after Deuteronomy 23.1 restricts eunuchs from being admitted into the assembly of the Lord, the Jewish prophet Isaiah heard that verse and flat out disagreed with the discrimination against these men. Isaiah railed against Deuteronomy 23 in chapter 56 of Isaiah's prophecy with these words, quote, Thus says the Lord, do not let the eunuchs say, I am just a dry tree. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give eunuchs an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Close quote. Isaiah disobeyed and overruled scripture in order to be more inclusive. In the same way that Philip would eventually disobey and overrule scripture again in order to be more inclusive. And speaking of Philip, I hope this perspective and these ideas change the way that you understand his encounter with the royal official. This story is from the book of Acts and is written from the Christian perspective. The Christian perspective colors the way we experience the story. But what if we recognize that this story is bigger than the Christian perspective offered in Acts? In chapter 8, Philip believes that God sends him to the royal official to welcome him into the assembly of the Lord by way of baptism. 
But who was it exactly that needed to be saved? After all, Philip is the one who looks down on and excludes the royal official due to his physical condition because of Deuteronomy 23. I get the sense that the royal official knows about Philip's prejudice. So he confronts Philip and asks him, what is to prevent me from being baptized? In that question, the royal official is challenging Philip to let go of his prejudice and see him as an equal man. The royal official calls out Philip and dares Philip to stop seeing him as inferior and instead see him as a man who bears the image of God. In this story, Philip is the one who lets go of his narrow perspective of God, which means that Philip is the one who needs to be saved. While the text is written from the Christian perspective and tells us that Philip was called by God to save the royal official, I believe that the historical event that occurred was that God led Philip to the royal official so that Philip might be saved from his own hatred. This theory only gains more credibility when you consider how the royal official and Philip started to talk. The royal official is studying Isaiah, the one man in the Hebrew Bible who dared to challenge Deuteronomy 23 and the notion that eunuchs should be excluded from the assembly of the Lord. Now, the author of Acts says that the royal official asked Philip about Isaiah 53, and Philip told the royal official that Isaiah 53 was a prophecy about Jesus Christ. But remember, Isaiah 53 is just three chapters before Isaiah 56. And Isaiah 56 is where Isaiah boldly argues for the inclusion and full acceptance of eunuchs everywhere. So when the author of Acts whose name is Luke, records this story. He writes it down years after this interaction occurred. Luke hears the entire story at best secondhand and more likely thirdhand. Which means that it's entirely plausible that the royal official encouraged Philip to keep reading after Isaiah 53 until he got to Isaiah 56 and demanded that Philip read about the inclusion of eunuchs. Or it's also entirely plausible that Luke got the citation of Isaiah wrong, and the royal official called Philip over not to study the prophecy about Jesus, but instead to study Isaiah 56 about the acceptance of eunuchs. In my imagination... I picture the royal official calling out Philip and saying to him, you have not lived up to this standard set forth by your prophet Isaiah. You, Philip, need to learn to accept people like me. And Philip, in that moment, realizes the pain his discrimination has caused. And he says in a humbled tone, you're right. This must change. And I will commit to change myself. From there, Philip baptized the royal official in water, 
but the royal official baptized Philip with the truth of God's love. Philip is the one who needed liberation, and God sent him a messenger to free him from his hatred. The royal official is the image bearer of Christ in this story. My friends, the Bible is a wonderful book when we keep it in its proper place. The Bible is composed of writings from people who shared how they perceived and understood the inspiration of God in their own life experiences. But we must never forget that God is always calling us to a love that is bigger than the Bible. We are called to let go of the Bible whenever the Bible prevents us from loving another human being. We are called to recognize that there are limits to the perspectives offered in the Bible and to empathize with those that the Bible would seek to marginalize. We are called to be students and learn from people who are outside of the Christian tradition because we believe that every human being is made in the image of God. We are called to empathy. We are called to humility. We are called to appreciate the diversity of perspective, and we are called to humanity. May we have the courage to let go of our religion, our scripture, and our church whenever they get in the way of loving another human being. And may we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all. Amen.